Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Welcome, everyone. Mike Lewis here with the Fanalytics Podcast. Today, I am joined by Rhett Grammatbauer. How'd I do on that? Perfect. Perfect. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you in today as well. Rhett is the author of a book called 25,000 Miles to Glory. This is um, a tremendously interesting book to me on a lot of levels, Rhett. What I emphasize in the, in the podcast is the analytics associated with fandom. Okay. And, and I'm guessing that you don't think of your work as analytics. I mean, I think most people, when they think about analytics, they think about statistical models, pages and pages of data. But I think what you did is a sort of a very worthy addition to, let's say, maybe not analytics, but the analysis of fans. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the idea behind the book? Well, I'd always had a dream of going to every NFL stadium. I grew up in a what I would consider a golden era for the NFL. When did you grow up? I still haven't, but okay. <laughs> uh, late 70s, early 80s. So we had the NFL Today with Brent Musburger, Pat Summerall, John Madden. On the other network was uh, Dick Enberg and Merlin Olson. And they would always portray these stadiums as just great places to be. And I was always intrigued by actually going to them. And then the, I became aware of the fans. As a, as a Cowboys fan, I couldn't understand anybody of being a fan of any other team. But... I, I kind of wanted to get out there and experience it just to okay. see what it was like. And, and so a little bit more background on the book. So the book details your, um, can I call it a journey, sort of epic journey to visit all the NFL stadiums in a single season? Correct, yeah. And it's, um, you know, it, it truly is an epic journey, and I, I like what you're talking about. We we actually grew up in in a similar time frame. My earliest memories of the NFL were really kind of the mid-70s, and um, we're going to be a little bit at odds here. Actually, it's, it's kind of cool in that um, you were viewing the world from the perspective of a Cowboys fan, and I was viewing the world from the opposite perspective of a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Yep. But the way you talked about the way stadiums were portrayed was one of the interesting things to me. It's, it's actually long been an interesting idea to me. It's almost like these things are modern-day cathedrals. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the teams and the stadiums become so much a part of the people's lives. Even yesterday when we went to the Falcons game, that's, that's their place of worship, I guess, for lack of a better word. Well, uh, it's the point of congregation, right? Right. Absolutely. Right. So the Falcons game yesterday, so you know, your first visit to Mercedes-Benz Stadium? And I can, I can honestly say, unbiasedly, it's the best stadium in the NFL. Why do you say that? It's everything that a modern stadium should be and not much of the excess that comes from a stadium like Cowboy Stadium. That's okay. that's purely for sponsorship and over the top and this was just a great place to sit, watch a game and it had all the modern conveniences you needed. It's beautiful too, right? Oh, it's truly beautiful, yeah. When I think about these stadiums, and again, it's the, I, I really do come back to like modern-day cathedrals in a lot of ways. The roof opens at this thing. Oh, it's, you know? it's, it's, it's tremendous. But then panoramic the, windows to see the skyline. Uh, and that's a nice touch because I, I really enjoy it. Indianapolis has a similar situation where you can see the skyline. Mm-hmm. And, and to look out there and see the Atlanta skyline, was, it, it just adds to the, 
to the game. You're not burnt out on uh, NFL games? I don't go to as many anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I went to a lot of Thursday night games, which I probably won't be doing. When did you do the trip? What year was it? So it was 2013, and I had to go that year in particular because that was the last year of Candlestick Park. It was the last year of the Metrodome, and I didn't know it at the time, but Jack Murphy Stadium was always a, a big stadium for me to go to, and knowing that the Chargers were moving it was important for me to see that in that stadium too and now we we talked a little bit a little bit about this and so one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on the podcast is that if you listen to the podcast we have a very uh, I don't know that I want to use this word but I can't think of a different one at the moment sort of an academic bent on all this what you were doing reminds me of a of a, a field of research called there's different terms for it but people will call it you know ethnography or essentially the idea of applying anthropology, anthropological principles to analyzing consumers, fans, tribes, consumers, a lot of similarities, sort of this idea of living with, uh, living with a group and understanding them. Now, you came at this project actually coming out the other side, well, academically, where were you at when you took this thing on and it's okay to be a little traumatized that's what we do in phd programs (laughs) well i had been two years in the phd program at lsu i had taken all the coursework phd program in marketing right correct i had found enough information of what i was interested in and then this opportunity came up so I, i wanted to take advantage of it and i thought that was more advantageous for me as a personally and professionally to go out and take advantage of it but so your interest was so you were a football fan and you had an interest in studying consumers right you mentioned we were getting ready to talk as we were about to turn the mics on you also sort of talked about the idea of brands right well sports teams to me are nothing but brands and they're probably the most consumed brands that you can imagine in the world Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter really what country you go to everybody has a sports team Soccer in in England is huge, so this is something that could be studied across the world. Well, and and so this idea of studying consumers and, and look to me, consumers plus sports brands equals fans, right? And so you had an interest in studying consumers. Why did you want to focus on football fans or really sports fans in general? Well, I thought it's the easiest one to do, and it's the hardest one to do at the same time. Okay. So they... they, Let's let's stay there. Why is it the easiest one? Because there's more surrounding a football game um, than there is to like a baseball or a basketball game or a hockey game. There's tailgating. There's the face painters all (laughs) all the way down to the people that maybe wear a t-shirt to the game and maybe don't even go to the game. My family was no different. Every Sunday was NFL football. Okay, so it's more of an event. Than it's the more other of an one? event, yeah, because there's fewer of them, and and they're bigger, right? They're bigger, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, I think whenever you experience an NFL game or even a, you know, since we're down in the South, an SEC football game as well, these things feel bigger than than the no no offense intended, but than the average NBA game or the average MLB game. That's right. So you were interested in studying consumers, and um, it's a little inside academia. I was going to say inside baseball, but you know, the way we study consumers or fans in academia is by things like conducting experiments. <laughs> this resonate right. with you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so one of the things that I think is, so when I think about analyzing fans, kind of what you're saying is it's the best kind of consumer to study. It's also the worst. For me, it comes down to being a tough one to study because it's so hard to study 
with like little, let's say, discrete methods. So, you know, secondary data or running an experiment in the lab. Right. And well, and I listened to your, your podcast about the NFL fan bases and ranking them. And yeah, and that's all pure data, right? Right. And so I see these places and these teams not as, as teams anymore. I see them as people because mm-hmm. it's, it's the, they take on the characteristics of the people we met and the people that were part of the study, more or less. And so, you know, I have a very different take on Cleveland Brown fans than, <laughs> than most people. Well, okay, for the for those of you that have not been with me the the whole way, so every year I I, I put together a, an analysis of NFL fan fan bases and actually rank them, and that's you know that's where the trouble starts. You know, so if we rank fan bases, then someone's number one and someone's near the bottom, and Cleveland ends up being near the bottom, and there's some reasons for that. I'm, I'm taking a largely economic look at at the fan bases and so let's start with cleveland so how do you think of cleveland fans or the cleveland fan and so you, you say you think of it as people you think it was like personality types you got like one kind of lifestyle branding kind of person in your head what how do you think of cleveland well i think of cleveland as well i think you have to give them credit because they have never won anything really not in our lifetime and they're some of the most diehard fans. And not only do they congregate at the stadiums, but they had a what they call Browns backers in all seven continents when, mm. when we went to the Cleveland Browns. And so there's got to be something said for that. And I think they'll probably burn down the town when they win. And I, I actually have them in the Super Bowl in the next five years. I'll go on record as saying it. they're going to catch it at the right time in the okay. AFC. But I think they're fantastic fans. I think they're some of the best fans in the NFL. So, but your Pittsburgh Steelers are, are much the same way Two blue collar towns that deeply support their franchise. And that's one of the great rivalries of all time in the NFL, in my opinion. So, so, so the Cleveland fans are, um, I, I don't know. So give, give me, give me a little bit more in terms of thinking about them as people. Great, I, great fans, obviously. And, and that's, that's one of the tough things of doing sort of the quantitative work I do is I'm, I'm not saying they're not great fans. You know, what are they like as when we get beyond the numbers? Sure. Well, I think there's almost, I don't want to say a self-defeating nature about them, but they're not, they don't expect a lot out of their life, (laughs) out of their life, but they're very supportive and extremely proud. Mm -hmm. Right. So they're, they're not willing to change colors just because their team's not going to win. And chances are they're not going to win every year and they know it going in. It almost sounds like Chicago Cubs fans in baseball. Or back in the day before they before, kinda yeah, yeah. started pouring money into the team. And, and there's a certain, ironically, there I think there's a certain point of pride with, hey, I'm still mm-hmm. around through all these losing seasons when everybody wanted to leave. We're still here. Okay, so blue collar, a lot of pride, a lot of resiliency. They don't quit. They don't quit, kind of yeah, yeah. That's essentially why I love what you do. Because if I take an economic look at fandom, I get what I get, right? I, the numbers tell me something, but they don't tell me sort of the human side of it. And when we're talking about fans, how can we not have the human side? And so you spent, sorry, how many weeks? So you spent 16 weeks 16 or weeks. 17 weeks? No, 16, 16 weeks. 16 weeks observing the, the human side. You know, this idea of ethnographic research, which I'm not a specialist in, I, I know they'll use terms like a thick description. And I think that's what you've accomplished in the book is a thick description, sort of something that gets, you know, drills down and starts to get, let's call it a rich, a rich description. Yeah. 
Well, and I kind of wanted everybody from, like I say, the people that buy the T-shirt, maybe watch the game on the television, to the extreme people that paint their face, dress up in their custom costumes. And it's interesting to hear them talk. They refer to it, uh, the team as we, you know, like they're a part of the team. And I think there's really something interesting when you see what these teams do for for their self-esteem on Sunday afternoons when they get in their costume and can lead a group of people in their section that's probably not who they are in, in their regular lives. So say that again. So what dressing up does for their self-esteem? So what do you what do you mean by that? I think they become somebody that they can't become in their everyday life. Okay. So and they're using fandom to make themselves more? What? I think it makes them more important. I think it gives them a more of a self-worth than maybe their jobs or or what have you in their everyday lives. And so I think the team becomes an important extension of who they are and their character. So a lot of guys or a lot of people that we we interviewed actually had alter egos. So Purple Dame in, in Baltimore, Titan Man in Tennessee, they became almost, almost these cartoon characters that gave them recognition from a fan base that they adore for a team. Okay. And, and I think this is one of these other words that ends up being really a hard thing to study. And so like I said, I'll, I'll keep coming back to this. So, you know, what I love about what you've done in terms of taking this very, let's say, rich approach versus what in academia is usually we're going to do a controlled experiment in a lab or we're going to look at archival data is that you start to get to that to that richness. And so when we start to talk about things like um, being the I'm, – I'm just going to interpret what you said and you tell me if I'm wrong – that these folks become the focal point of a community that they're really that's really important to them. You can imagine that's got to be an incredibly powerful thing in terms of the world of consumption or in terms of marketing, right? Absolutely. You know, when they can lead a cheer in a stadium full of eighty thousand people and people are turning to them for uh, right. cues. I mean, so, so now we're, we're now we're almost fully back to this idea of the cathedral and they're leading a worship service. That's right. That's right. And so. It happened over and over and over again, city after city. It was just amazing to see. But then, then you have, you know, we interviewed a, a really nice family in San Francisco that watched the games on the television, and it was a it was a intimate family time together. And it reminded her of her dad who started her watching NFL football, the 49ers, back in their heyday. And it was just a continuation of that tradition. So it kind of brought him back every Sunday in watching the 49ers. That's another sort of great aspect of this to bring in is this idea of generational fandom. Yeah. Well, it's it, you know, it's interesting. We went to Carolina, and the, the people we interviewed said... Well, they that, don't have generational fandom there, right? Well, and, and they said, this is the first time we've ever had a generation of fans. So... You know, what's funny, I mean, so since we're of similar vintage, though I think I'm a little older, when did Carolina start? Is that like late 90s? I think it like... Late late eighties, late late, <laughs> or maybe the early nineties. I can't remember. But they they got off to a really really good start. Yeah. Remember, they were in the NFC Championship. But game. but you know, funny thing is, they still feel like an expansion team to me. In a they do, way. they do. Yeah. yeah. So same thing with Jacksonville. But it it shows you how important generations of fans yeah. are. Yeah, I mean, and so that that's interesting. So now they've been there for twenty five years. You think? Yeah, so, you know, the young kids don't know anything but Carolina football. Yeah, the the team's always existed. The team's always existed, where before, I guess, they had to become Falcon fans, or Mm -hmm. I guess this was the closest team to them. So, yeah, and then you go to somebody like uh, the cities of Baltimore who got their team ripped out from them, and that's still a, a significant emotional scar 
on people who liked the Colts and who liked the city of Baltimore. And it's a sense of pride for the entire city. In terms of, like, when you're talking to these fans, they how often do they sort of go back to that Colt incident? Yeah. The Ursays moving the team at, what, 1 a.m. or whatever? Well, it's, it's interesting because then you go to a Colts game and you're like, well, these are the benefactors of it, so they think it's kind of funny, you know, because it's not their loss. And then when we went to the Arizona Cardinal game against the Rams, this was back when the Rams hadn't moved back to Los Angeles, and it looked like a Rams home game because there were so many people who drove from Los Angeles every year for that game. Um, because they, they, And the guy even said to us, they're just on a 20-year vacation. They're coming back. Some of the stories you're telling today, the, the, the anecdotes, are actually focused on teams that we don't think of as NFL royalty. No, no. And, it, and everybody, every fan base has it. Yeah. Everybody, uh, regardless of their win-loss record, Kansas City is a fantastic place. Very powerful fan base. And, you know, another one of those iconic stadiums that I had to go see was Arrowhead. Yeah. Uh, Well, you know, Kansas City is also another one that does. um, So full disclosure, in terms of the, the teams that don't do well in these economic rankings, Kansas City tends not to do very well. Let, let, let me tell you, so the, the, the teams that tend not to do very well, Kansas City, Buffalo, Cleveland, and the Raiders. Yeah. One of the things that's fascinating to me is the difference in the personality of those teams because I, I get a ton of, um, as you might expect, I get a ton of hate email sure. following these things. But it really varies in, in tone. Is that, look, so I'll put it out to you. You tell me how this, this reflects sort of your perceptions of these fan bases. Cleveland fans are funny. They're beat down, but they're funny about this. They, well, I think it's important to have a sense of humor because it is yeah. it is just football after all. So. <laughs> okay. Well, then on the other side of it, Raiders fans are mad. They go straight to the death threats on this stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, seriously, and it's like um, maybe I shouldn't even laugh about that in this in this world, but they go straight to anger and profanity and threats, and it's you, you know, know you know it's it's interesting that you say that because. Walking on to the Oakland Coliseum, I was worried about it because you, you hear all these stories. Yeah. Then we were invited by the Black Hole Tailgate to, to meet them and hang out with them, and it was fa- fantastic. Some of the nicest people you will ever meet. What did you wear? Nothing. I mean, okay. Well, I wore something, but it, it was nothing Raiders. <laughs> it wasn't a Raider. It wasn't. But, uh, and actually, somebody from the Raiders came out because they saw us filming on the property. Yeah. And she said, what are you guys doing? And we said, well, we're just filming. And she said, okay, but nothing nothing Raiders like what people want to see. Make sure you get some kids in there. Um, because the outside world sees it very differently, I think, from what it really is. Mm-hmm. And Oakland's, the, the stadium's in a rough part. If you go three blocks over, you're taking your life into your own hands. But the Raiders fans are a great fan base. I think what's happening to them is, is really a disservice to, to the Raiders fans. And they've had it done continually, it seems yeah. like. So that's that, yeah, that's true. Move back, move. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting to me. And it, a lot of times, you know, I want you to tell these stories because I love these stories. But a lot of times when you're talking, it's like I, I find myself keying on certain specific words. And even that story about the Raiders fans being great, it almost seems like they accepted you as part of their community, at least for the day. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was it, it was really nice. And so, part of me then starts to wonder: Is it just do they have more of a us against them feel than some of the other fan bases? I think it could be, and that's probably why that you get such a response from Raiders fans because maybe they've been backed into a corner. They've always been the 
the bad yeah. guys of the NFL. Uh, always, right? Always. And they kind of embrace that, and that's cool. But And, and the people that we talked to were all about family. You know, we get, okay. you get this sense of family here. One of the guys we interviewed felt like an outcast. That's the word he used in life. He felt like an outcast. And when he came to meet other Raiders fans, he felt like he belonged. And mm -hmm. so he kind of embraces that outcast mentality, but it helps him in life because now he's got friends. A community of outcasts? Yeah. 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 And, and I think this is, like I said, you know, this is uh, in a lot of ways, I think a missing part of what I do being very quantitatively you know, oriented is to get this kind of richness. And so this, you know, generational aspects, um, you know, the fact that who your, who your parents were rooted for, right. And right. this happens in Carolina, the community aspects. Now you also, you mentioned something that again, sort of triggered something for me. So I was born in 1967. Okay. 73. 73. Okay. And so I start uh, rooting for the Pittsburgh Steelers because that's where my grandfather rooted for. Okay. And the Pittsburgh Steelers would be um, beating the Dallas Cowboys every couple of years in the Super Bowl, right? Uh, <laughs> you can rub it in. Go ahead. <laughs> well, and, and I'm kind of making a making a light, but I'm kind of making a point, too. It's like, remember that like yesterday? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and when we talk about the Raiders, you say they've always been the bad guys. So when you're talking about always the bad guys, who are you talking about? When you think of the Raiders, do you go back to the seventies? I think of uh, I think of Lester Hayes. Okay, uh, we actually interviewed him for the documentary. Found him in a Kmart, yeah. uh, <laughs> but you know he was yeah. the original Stickham guy. You know that kind of bent the rules. He was the shutdown corner. Ken Stabler, who was an Oiler at one time, who you know I followed because we were in Texas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they've always been Al Davis, just win baby. Al, right? Al Davis, Cliff Branch. You know, you can go with Dave Casper. The reputation of going out does look you know, like back in the day. I think the Raiders. You, you tell me your perception. You know, it's like if the Raiders were gonna, if they could find a guy in the prison system that could help the team, they were gonna try and get him paroled, right? Sure. Yeah. Well, Al Davis was the original Jerry Jones, in my opinion. You know, he was he was a promoter and he was a business guy, and you you didn't like the team based solely on who owned it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, so yeah, I think he was. But you know, the NFL is great for people like Al Davis. Yeah, no, well, I mean, and I think Al Davis was great for the NFL. Yeah, right. It's sort of the pirate ship of the of the NFL, while the the Steelers were I don't know the blue collar guys, and then who were the Cowboys? The Cowboys are an interesting take because they were self-promoting and, and had training camp in California yeah. just to get those fan bases on mm -hmm. the Cowboys' side. So they became America's team and, and had a following. I think it's a little bit... Well, they almost... Uh, the, the, and this is, this is one of the things I love about fandom, right? See, I, I can't help but argue with you. It's like they force themselves to be called America's team, right? True, true. <laughs> whereas, whereas Pittsburgh's a little bit different because they're diehard, they're diehard fans, but they've migrated around the country because the, the economics of Pittsburgh, and so they have a fantastic fan base all around the country, yeah. but it's for a different reason. It's not like... The they, exodus, right? It, it wasn't forced on, on yeah. people to become America's team or whatnot. And then you get something that's really interesting is, is coming from Texas. I remember the Oilers. I remember the Steelers playing games. And then you go to Tennessee, who became the Oilers, and you see that Oil Derrick, mm -hmm. and it's just like a punch to the gut. It's yeah. just, you know, it's, you know, I went with an Oilers fan, and he's like, I can't believe this. Well, and, and this, this brings up something else that I loved about the book. And, and I don't remember if you actually used this word, but I couldn't help thinking about it as I read it. 
and it gets to kind of this long-term stuff and sort of the notion of history and that's almost like the word artifacts yeah and you know as a as a kid i remember having a um some of my relatives sent a terrible towel Mm. right that's the i mean did you have i'm like reaching for it i can't i think you had some similar stories in the book but i can't the, you know, tip of my tongue kind of thing. As a Cowboys fan? Anything, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, the Sears Christmas wish book was always a big deal to me because then you could go through all of the stuff for the NFL and pick out, and they had other teams on there, and I was like, man, this is, why would you want that, you know? <laughs> um, but I had a I had a, ha- uh, a helmet just like Roger Staubach that I just wore around the house all the time mm-hmm. because that was, I mean, that's who I was. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and that's great. And, like, this is this is old school and probably, you know, losing anyone under 40 in this conversation. But it's like if, if you ask me the quarterback of the uh, – you ask me the quarterback of the Steelers, the Cowboys, and the Raiders, you know, I'm going to say Terry Bradshaw, Roger Staubach, and uh, Kenny Stabler. Yeah, number 12. Yeah. Were they all number 12? They were all number 12. <laughs> and, it, and it's great, right? It's like um, when I think of the Cowboys, I do think of – Starbuck is this like uh, I'm going to give you my outsider's view and you sort of push back if you want this choir boy wholesome guy your your coach is wearing that the what's the what fedora the fedora and then you had this Hollywood kind of cheerleaders mm-hmm. and my Steelers were sort of they were, were sort of real people you know like you're the corporate team <laughs> we're the real, we don't have cheerleaders. It's just... and, and what bothered me about the Steelers is they had a logo only on one side of their helmet. <laughs> I could never figure out as a kid why would you not have a sticker on the other side of the helmet. I don't. To this day, they don't. Right? Yeah, it's beautiful. Though. Yeah. It's, those are the things that make it. Yeah. The other thing that really I loved about the book, and um, and, and this is going to be a strange one, I loved how you learned how to multiply. Oh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty good at sevens, and if they miss extra points, yeah. Because I was the same way in terms of sevens. It was like, you know, sixes, eights, you know, that's kind of hard, but sevens, that's easy. Seven, 14, 21, 28, 35, 42. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then I added on field goals as I got older, you know, and had to do more numbers. But yeah, it was all about, okay, if the Cowboys score two touchdowns, that's 14 points. So yeah, I was a mathematician with sevens. <laughs> to wrap it up, What's kind of some of your takeaways from the book, sort of big takeaways or, you know, stuff that really kind of resonated, stuff that you learned? I mean, you know, because you grew up a football fan, so probably a lot of it didn't surprise you, but what kind of really popped for you? I was amazed at how big of uh, football fans women were. Some of the best fans we interviewed were women and how important this game was to them personally. Yeah, I wasn't prepared for that. Is female fandom different than male fandom? Wow, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think so. Uh, a Cleveland fan probably put it best. She said, "I love the sound of football," and I had never thought about sports as being auditory. She said that, and then she said, "Well, the Browns are like the eighty Browns with Brian Sype lost some more listeners," <laughs> but she said it's like a first love you can never let go of. That, that yeah. was just my team that I grew up with, and I think everybody has that first love. Mm-hmm. And it, you shouldn't fault them for the team they support. Like, I'm still sitting here with you, even though you like the Steelers. Because we're all the same, but we're all different. And that's what makes sports fantastic. And then, like I said, I think what I love about what you do is, you know, if I'm going back over our conversation, I'm forgetting, I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple of things. A lot of really key words, you know, this kind of... Uh, it's a place where we congregate, right? It's a place, it's part of community. It's where we meet up. 
the importance of generations, the importance of, you know, even ending it with this idea of your first love in terms of a team, man, that that's something, right? It's like, you get into like questions like, oh, geez, you, you became a cowboy fan at what age? Five, six? Yeah, four or five. Yeah. Four or five. It's like, what's the latest you can become a real fan of a team? That's a good question. Yeah. That's a really good question. I, because I think it's it's part of your childhood. It mm-hmm. should be. It's like there's got to be a time when it can be imprinted on you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, just that sweet spot where you can't you can't root for Before another Before you're team. jaded, right? Yeah. Well, the, and that's what's interesting about Carolina, too, is because they, they had to have an original fan base there, right? So somebody, mm-hmm. people had to ditch their old team and go yeah. with their new team, so... Yeah. You know, how long do you have to be in a city to really have that hardcore fan base, right? I mean, to have a real fan base. We were, you were at the Mercedes Benz Stadium yesterday. And there's another team that plays at Mercedes Benz. You know who they are? They're fantastic. I'd I'd like to go to a soccer game there. Okay. And the Atlanta United are bringing in 70,000 people to MLS games, which is unprecedented. I mean, I think. The number two team in that league is probably drawing 30,000 fewer fans, maybe, you know, 25,000. But I, I keep looking at it and going, is it real? You know, it's like, how long does it take? Yeah, I actually was sitting in the stadium yesterday thinking, they packed this place for soccer. <laughs> for soccer. In the United States. It's I've, fantastic. I've, I've told Europeans that story, and they're like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I, I'd like to go to a soccer game. Well, and, and I think you should. And, you know, everyone... You know, I, I try and stay agnostic about this, but everyone says it's a, that they've they've gotten everything right, and and some of that might be the fact that they are owned by an NFL team, so they've got NFL level production values, adding to this. You know, I don't know this sort of groundswell of support for the team. But then you then you're going to get generations of fans for them, and that's going to be because they've gotten it so right. We'll see. Then you know, in the the future, seventy thousand. It, it looks bright. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I want to thank Rhett for coming in. Uh, Rhett, what's the name of the book and where can they find it? They can find 25,000 Miles of Glory on Amazon, iTunes, pretty much any, anywhere you can buy books online is, is where you can find 25,000 Miles to Glory. Okay, thanks very much. I appreciate it.